Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stop the press. We've recorded a flat chat on time for once uh, as a new edition of GP Racing lands on the newsstands and it makes its touchdown. We've sneaked in a recording before the various parties of the first part go on their travels again. So me included. Um, one of one of our guests is going to have to have my company on the plane tomorrow, I think. So suitcases at the ready. Let's introduce our regular guests uh, live from what looks like a very sunny Lincolnshire. It is Lance Stroll's favourite Formula One journalist, <laughs> Matt Q. <laughs> what an introduction. Thank you. Yeah, it is a glorious morning. The temperature seems to have dropped by about 10 degrees overnight. Uh, I dared to put on the heating. Um Last night, obviously having uh, cancelled my Netflix and uh, taking avocados off the shopping list, I oh, thought yes. I'd put it on last night. Um, but yeah, it's it's, uh, it's quite a nice, warm and pleasant day today. Yes, and I shall be. I've I haven't. Um, well, as as we've been finding out in the last twenty four hours, Cotters, the American Airlines sort of add ons are a rip off. So um, we'll be sort of cramped in the middle seat on our way to uh, Texas soon and yes I can reacquaint myself uh, with uh, with Lance uh, after after his uh, garage <laughs> antics in uh, in Qatar now I've had the joy of hearing the audio of this exchange now sadly we can't share it with the listener because that would be against um, the uh, regulations we signed up to in copyright because of course FOM can record anything we do and broadcast it but we can't broadcast stuff we record but there you go hey ho twas ever thus been the same since the Valari was a boy. Let's bring her our other guest who's about to go jet off somewhere this very day. It's Mark Gallagher. Where are you going, Mark? So we're all going to the United States. You're going to Austin and Texas. I'm going to Salt Lake City uh, for four days and managing to miss the Grand Prix while I'm there. So anyway, that's uh, that's where I'm off to. You're in Egypt last week. And obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you didn't you didn't walk like an Egyptian in the words of no, the Bengals because no. um, yeah. that, that's that's considered a hate crime these days. But you didn't you didn't get to see the the Great Pyramid of Giza until you were up in the air. So you must have been very busy. Yeah, well, I was given the option of flying via Cairo uh, down to Sharm el-Sheikh and then I discovered that uh, Cairo Airport Security um, is prone to security officials accepting $20 to skip security. So you, you pay $20, you can skip security entirely in Cairo Airport, apparently, which didn't fill me with lots of uh, <laughs> no. confidence about the security situation, particularly given what's happening very tragically just a few miles across the Sinai Desert, across the border in uh, Gaza and uh, Israel. So going to Egypt last week was... Uh, a, a little bit of a nervous undertaking, I have to say. So managed to get a, a flight to Istanbul and then down to Sharm el-Sheikh, where I was joined by none other than David Coulthard. And we spent two actually very enjoyable days with a, a client of my company's doing a, doing a corporate event. And um, 
and having a good catch-up, which we only manage to do about two or three times a year. But it's always good to have DC, um, you know, kind of fill you in on what's really happening behind the scenes because he tends to be a man with his finger on the pulse. And uh, so that was it was all, all in all very enjoyable. So that was great. Egypt last week, United States this week, um, and then Spain and Portugal next week. So, yeah, the air miles continue to build up, unfortunately. It's the carbon footprint. Last night I sat down and did another calculation. So I have to plant... 12,500 trees to compensate for my lifetime of air travel. I don't know if that's becoming my new target. Maybe that'll be my retirement target is plant a small forest somewhere. To knock, your, knock your own house down and build some trees. It would explain a nice sunny morning in Lincolnshire anyway. <laughs> Yeah, and then perhaps yeah, you know, yeah. next time you go, you can see the the pyramids. I mean, I, I in Wagamama's the other week, I saw someone with a great pyramid of gyoza. Oh, <laughs> it just gets worse. It just gets worse. Just to go back to the podcast introduction, I might now be going onto American Airlines and booking a seat at the other end of the plane. <laughs> Well, there didn't seem to be that many available. I took the one middle seat that was available. Everything else was like 71 quid just to have a seat. I mean, presumably, if you checked in half an hour after me, you'd have had no option but to dip into the wallet. Anyway, anyway, enough of late capitalism. Before we dig into the contents of the new issue of GP Racing, shall we have a look at a few bits of matters of moment, sort of late of the day things that are in the race reports and news sections. Because um, in the last couple of days before we went to press, Max Verstappen joined a select group of drivers who've won the world championship on a Saturday. Is that it? Is that Max's claim to fame? <laughs> that he's won, <laughs> he won the world championship on a Saturday. That's uh, yeah. So that's something else that Lewis Hamilton hasn't done. Is that what you're saying? Um, it's, exactly. Uh, Great one-upmanship. And well, it's, it's about the only. It's, it's about the only takeaway apart from a nice couple of trophies that Red Bull are going to be able to get from this year, having hoped to get a one-two, which Sergio Perez um, seems to be not managing to get across the line. Although you know there are are five races left. Um, I suppose we we should probably talk about Qatar because there's a lot of matters arising from that weekend. Unforeseen consequences of track resurfacing, sticking in new curbs that no one could possibly have imagined that drivers would stray over the edge and the inner lips of those things, which were sharp, would then uh, micro-abrade the uh, inner shoulders of the tyres. You know, it's, had someone taken $20 to not check the inner edge of the curbs? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the whole thing leaves me just utterly bemused. We have this incredibly scientific sport with literally thousands of incredibly bright people, uh, sort of unparalleled levels of computing power, uh, simulation technology. You know, every you know, no stone is left unturned apart from the stones that line the track, which seems to be a complete surprise to everyone when they turns out that are incompatible with the current tires and. It, it, it again leaves me feeling that everything is quite compartmentalised and siloed. You have the teams doing their job. You have, you know, Formula One doing its job. You have the FIA doing their job. You have the circuits and the promoters doing their job. And although there are lots and lots of meetings, it seems like some fairly fundamental things just never quite get tabled or discussed in the in the way that they need to. And then it's all a complete revelation when it goes pear shaped during a Grand Prix when. Spectators are, you know, paid a lot of money for their tickets. When the media paid a lot of money to, I mean, just like you two of you guys, you know, flying out to the other side of the world to cover yet another race, and then these fundamental things seem to come as a surprise. And there should be no such thing as a surprise in 2023. Every facet of running a Grand Prix is incredibly well understood. Um, so it just suggests that. It's a little bit of silo mentality. Right hand's not quite talking to the left hand in the in the right way, and uh, you know the drivers end the drop the drivers end up being uh, to some degree put in harm's way because of the risks of the tires being damaged. And then you have this um, you know all of a sudden a change of rules, you know, in terms of mandatory pit stops and after so many laps, etc. So yeah, it just it just feels like everyone needs to get together in a slightly more sincere manner and really talk about the detail uh, rather than hoping for the best. Hope hope is never much of a strategy. Yeah, the fingers crossed thing. Now, Matt, you know, with your race report head on, how how, how was it um, understanding the flow of a race that had a completely different kind of structure of 
minimum, you know, maximum stint lengths and whatnot, I, I sort of had to screw in a sort of Le Mans part of my brain to note down when people stopped and the, the earliest points by which they would have to stop again. Uh, and a lot of people were just free-forming it anyway because they were building in the possibility of a safety car. Yeah, there was a bit of that, but I, I found sort of with the proliferation of like the Amazon infographics and, and sort of... Um you know, stats and data on a team. I think in the first stint said, uh, you know, Max Verstappen, 13 lap old tyres, and then you know he could only go to 18 laps. So you've got a five lap window and either he runs the tyres as long as they'll go to give himself some sort of, you know, some some slack in his belt towards the end of the race or, or if there's a safety car, you know, he pits immediately. So from that point, I actually found it incredibly prescriptive. And okay, you know... You, it goes both ways, don't you? Although the McLarens weren't really in a position to challenge the Red uh, Max Verstappen, and maybe Mercedes would have been if they had not, you know, annihilated one another in the first corner. The fact that Verstappen only won by four point eight seconds suggests that you know, in a, another race, having that artificial element restricts his advantage because, as we've known, even compared to Prez, it's about how he like leans into those Pirellis initially, so they're much more forgiving and they last longer and uh, and are more sort of powerful towards the end of the stint. And so that was taken away, so nullified some of the advantage. But then, do you have that thing of okay, it's not been a blockbuster season up front with Max Verstappen dominating, but at least it's been meritocratic and it's called upon the strategist to be a bit inspired and a bit creative every now and again. And I thought those elements, which are you know, because lap time, lap time and race pace is almost immaterial, isn't it? Wet races are mega. British touring cars can be mega. Outright lap time isn't isn't the be all and end all to me. So if they're rather than having these eighteen lap sprints combining to make a fifty seven lap race, if they're having to do a bit of pace management, I find that more agreeable. If it's bringing in the strategist and element of free thinking, creativity being being sort of a bit more meritocratic that rather than a prescriptive politely f2 race the stint length then fed into it being a little bit of a harem scarum race in hot conditions which should have come as no surprise that qatar is hot in early october uh and drivers suffering on on a circuit that is high tempo high g um i remember you know many many years ago when i was not long out of short trousers covering a few sports car races there was one at texas motor speedway where the drivers were starting to get blurred vision because of the high g as they went upon the banking because it was a roval circuit uh, and uh, another uh, race that was very hot elsewhere on a roval where one driver actually did blackout um fortunately not in a prototype but in, in a gt car but he still caused enough of a shunt for it to be quite scary so i was kind of surprised and disappointed to see the various knuckleheads uh, on social media the usual suspects striking a pose and saying oh these drivers are all being wimps when they moan about safety they should just go out there and die for our entertainment you know the the, the, the spirit of dennis jenkinson is alive and well in certain obstinate attitudes on uh, social media we enjoy formula one for lots of things but we don't enjoy formula one to see people vomit and uh pass out and risk themselves and all the people around them through you know profound overheating and dehydration and it was it's really interesting again i go back to the point that I made earlier on about the curbs. It's as though all the dots are not fully being joined in terms of looking at what are the implications. So when you say, well, we're going to do three pit stops and everyone's going to drive flat out and it's going to be it's going to be a harder race than ever, um, what are the implications? And the implications were incredibly clear. I mean, it's it's. Um, yeah, I remember I remember Bernie Eccleston saying a long time ago that one of the great things about Nigel Mansell is that he would win the race and then faint on the podium. It was so dramatic. You know? <laughs> um, and, but that was it was a kind of a joke. It was the throwaway line. Uh, no one actually wants to see the driver suffering to that point. And I, I do get the fact that some people feel the sport is now too safe. And I was asked this question the other day. I was, uh, you know, at an event. Someone said. You know, is Formula One now too safe? It's too risk averse. It's too, too whatever. And I always have a standard answer to that, which is, 
you know, how much death or injury do you want? Just a little bit, like just just a because it's actually quite a binary outcome. You either want people to be safe or not safe. And Qatar felt unsafe at the end of the day. And therefore, all the implications of just saying, well, you know, the tires are at risk, so oh, we'll have mandatory number of pit stops and, you know, maximum number of laps on tires. What are the other additional implications of that? Who's running the simulation? And what does that mean for the driver's well-being? And what's the pace that they're going to be able to maintain across the race? And look at all of those other factors. So, again, it looked like it was all a surprise, and it should not be a surprise, especially in this day and age when, I mean, quite literally, driver welfare, you know, everything about them, their fitness, their diet, their training, their, their you know, their entire makeup is, is analyzed to such a degree. You take a company like Hints at Performance, which is, you know, looking after the well-being, I think, of most of the drivers on the grid. I mean, Hints are experts in this. So, you know, did anyone sit down with Hints and say, right, OK, let's take a let's take a, a view at these races and what if scenarios, you know, what if we did this or what if that happened? How are we going to deal with it? And so, you know, can the driver's welfare be better protected? So it's it's um, it was, it was unfor- very unfortunate. I, I, I kind of feel like we got away with it a little bit. Um, somebody could have ended up hospitalised and, and not very well if things had taken a nastier turn. Matt, as a tall person, you must occasionally suffer blood starvation to the head when you stand up too quickly or whatever. Absolutely, all the time. It makes me question uh, whether I have enough iron in my in my uh, in my diet. And uh, obviously, it's trivial compared to how eloquently and seriously Marcus put it. But I'd like to just, if you could all spare a moment for the journalists as well, who were kept waiting longer in a media pen while everyone was having their media che- checks, and then oh. were just drenched in sweat, but not our own, as the drivers were like leaning into the dictaphones oh. and just dripping all over us, and. Uh, I actually took a picture. I can show it to you on the plane corners of just uh, the the sodden mess that was like the carpet lining the the media pen as everyone just dripped on it, and uh, there was there was there was an aroma that came came with it too. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was grueling, and it's dear, oh dear. it's sort of the thing that this is maybe a more of a question for down the pub. But it was it was put to me because I've only ever covered Formula One in the Liberty Media era. But it was put to me that it's a bit more everything's a bit more hastily prepared under this regime than the previous one. Obviously, Eccleston's been in the headlines this year, but like even on the approach to the circuit, apparently like signage under Eccleston would be, would be pin sharp, everything, the details would be there and it's a bit more potentially slapdash now. The bits you see on TV are pristine, but the periphery is, is a bit more, I suppose, frayed and whether that, that feeds in back to the tyres with Pirelli or the conditions and the fact that because these races are, you know, there's such a huge infrastructure project to get them built. We had new facilities in Qatar that they're now only ready weeks before the Grand Prix. So there's not a chance for there to be like two, three, four reckeys just to make sure that everything in, is in place. Bernie had his underling, Pasquale Latinedu, who was like his, um, uh, his, his eyes and ears on the factory floor, who would be wandering the paddock. And if he saw a, a truck parked slightly out of line they would have to move it but at the same time you you did have a few issues here and there uh, in the bernie era just off the top of my head the first abu dhabi grand prix they the paint was still wet in places ditto korea which was barely ready in time and barely finished even when formula one had stopped um racing there i remember going to the last korean grand prix talking to some team people who said they'd found food that was left over from last the previous year's grand prix still in the fridges in the catering unit but you know kind of that that was sort of the the dying end of the the Bernie era. Bernie certainly did have that sort of slightly um, OCD tendency that he liked stuff to be neat. There is a story which um, Gordon Murray has refuted, which was that when Bernie owned Brabham, Bernie really hated the way that the Venetian blinds, the louvers of the Venetian blinds in the design office were 
generally in disarray and not hanging straight. And and it's it's said, uh, Gordon Murray denies it, Bernie went to Gordon, straighten them out, straighten them out, straighten them out. They're triggering me every time I walk in, get them straightened. They never got straightened. So one day apparently Bernie had them set in concrete. <laughs> Yeah, he had them fixed. I actually know that I know that he had slats put in, which were permanently fi- fitted. And the and the other the other story of that time was that he decided to have a um, pre mobile phone days, pre cell phones, pre mobile phones. He decided to give the staff the benefit of having a, a telephone installed in on the workshop wall, but the cable kept turning around and twisting. And every time Bernie went past it, he would untwist it. And eventually one day just got fed up and ripped it <laughs> off the wall because it just kept, kept twisting up. And, you know, it's, it's actually very interesting for me to hear you say what you said, Matt, about the kind of attention to detail because one of the things about Liberty is that what they've grown the business so enormously and they've grown the number of people who work within Formula One as a result because they need more hands on deck. But, again, one of the things that happens as companies get much larger is there's less control and – you know, people start operating in little in their little functions, their little silos, and there's no one person kind of overseeing it. Like him or loathe him, one thing that Bernie used to personally do was to literally march around and check everything. He used to go around, he used to check, he used to, you know, he'd have Pasquale with him and they'd they'd go and they'd measure things and they'd check stuff out. And I doubt I doubt that there's anyone in Formula One doing that now. Certainly Stefano Domenicali won't be taking his measuring tape to see if the motorhomes are parked to the centimetre perfect space. But that's not to say Stefano's not doing his job. It's just to say Formula One has changed. It's a much bigger beast. And, and yeah, maybe this all feeds back to, back to uh, maybe a slight lack of attention to detail on, on certain things coming through. I've had a sudden recollection of a former colleague of mine who was also a stickler for detail in his apparel. Like he would wear white starched shirts and he didn't like having to have his past dangling around his neck he considered it inelegant so he would often sort of tuck it away either the past would go in a top pocket or something or that the the past would be stashed away in in a pocket rather than ruin the line of his shirt or his trousers or whatever and, and on several occasions it, it there would be a paddock policeman not necessarily pasquale but a an, an another underling would march up to Stefan and, and say, you know, where's your pass? How have you got in? And, that, you know, because Stefan was French, a vast arg- and unnecessary argument would then ensue um, with the, the pass being produced and waved around with, with a lot of... Rah, 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 rah. Just goes to show that back in the day, it wasn't just, you know, you, you'd just walk through and once you'd clicked your pass on the gates, you were through, you didn't have anyone checking. Imagine doing that nowadays when the paddock is absolutely full of people who don't need to be there. Anyway, rant over. GP racing this month. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let, let's let's get and end this rantation. Fernando Alonso, obviously, you know, championship wrapped up. There's plenty for a Formula One magazine to talk about, which is a good thing. Readers might chafe if it arrived with empty pages. So we charged Oleg with the task of finding out what makes Fernando Alonso tick, a fierce competitor, and uh, why Formula One is quote unquote Rob Smedley like a drug to him. That's Fernando, not Oleg. I mean, it might be to Oleg. He always seems keen about it to me. The opening anecdote that Oleg's chosen of from Pedro de la Rosa of how at the end of a really busy 22-odd race season a couple of years back, Fernando was ringing around his mate saying, come on, let's go and do the Dubai 24-hour kart race. And Pedro said, oh, it's just been such a long and tiring season. And <laughs> this is from Pedro, who only has to drive VIPs around the circuit on a Thursday and try not to crash the Aston Martin on a hot lap. He's saying, oh, it's so, it's so tiring. How, how can you do this? And Fernando's saying, oh, it's OK, I'll do it. Come on, we'll do it. I'll be team manager. I'll do the run plan and all that sort of thing. So he's just such a relentless competitor. But he also enjoys it. I mean, I don't know, Mark, have you seen anyone else in your time in Formula 1 who is that sort of driven to compete? It's such an interesting article because it, first of all, Pedro de la Rosa knows Fernando so well. And it's not surprising that Oleg's gone to him to get that these kind of insights. And the stories that come through really underline a quite a unique aspect to Fernando. The fact that he doesn't have kids, the fact that... He's one of seven drivers with the longest careers, you know, six world champions. I think the, the outlier that Oleg, Oleg mentions is Rubens Barrichello. But the fact that, that Fernando has, of those 
you know, six of those world champions, you know, he's he has been so focused on even in his personal life, not starting a family yet. We used to joke that every child you had was worth a tenth or two of a second per lap because you wanted to get home and see the family. He's also had a break from Formula One, which, you know, I think in in my own view, actually everyone who works in Formula One should take a break from Formula One after a few years. I, I really genuinely believe that. I I haven't worked full time in the paddock now for over a decade. And I love the sport now far more than I did when I went to every race because I, I have rediscovered what it was about Formula One that I loved in the first place. And I mean, you know, one of the reasons I wrote for the magazine, I, I just love the fact that I get an opportunity to, to write about the sport that I love. So when you're at, at the at the coalface of the sport for a long, long time, I think I went to every race for 25 years, uh, it does start to become wearying there's a little bit of a groundhog day feeling sets in you know been here done that you you know you know every track hotel airport driver team you know you've seen it all before um taking a break is good and i think for fernando there was a very clear decision to come back to f1 because he missed it and he enjoyed it and and he's enjoying it and it's so interesting to see all the things that that come through in that in that article about his just intense enjoyment of of racing, be it a Formula One car, be it a cart in a twenty four hour cart race. Um, he just enjoys the challenge. He relishes it. He likes the fact that there's you know he he, he wants to feel that there's at least an outside chance that he could nick a win. Um, and I think with Aston Martin, he's he's you know he's had that certainly in the early part of this season. Um, and therefore, he can enjoy it, and he must be reflecting on the fact that you know, at forty-two years of age, time is not on his side. So why not enjoy every minute and you know, give it the best? And and it it is a pleasure, and we are very fortunate to see this because there's nothing worse than than the world champion who fades into obscurity and slightly embarrasses himself, um, you know, towards the end of his career by sticking around too long and. And being a shadow of his former self, we're not seeing that with Fernando, and and it's fantastic. Um, so I thought really interesting uh, feature and helps to helps to explain what we've been seeing since he turned up at Team Silverstone and have um, put in all of those, particularly in the as I say first half of the season, all those podium finishes, which uh, are one of the hallmarks of the twenty three season. Remarkable how he even uh, admits to enjoying coming and sweating on the media. He's going, oh, I love to speak to these guys and drip on their digital voice recorders. It's it's obvious, like from his wry smile, his body language, that he sees the media as as an opportunity. Like his his nickname um, among the media cohort is like, he's a bit of a renter quote, isn't he? But but that's fine because that's a completely you know if you if you go into it with your with your eyes open and not expecting to become best pals with him, that's fine because you understand that the relationship is entirely transactional. He says things, plants things, whether it's about his media, about uh, the engine, the colleagues, whatever, that he knows will generate a good headline or, you know, whether it's uh, that was the best drive for 13th place the world has ever seen. But obviously, <laughs> you know, being quite aware that 13th place wasn't probably, the battle for 13th place wasn't showing much on TV to draw attention to what a good job he's doing or or to berate powers that be or to, or to you know, show more backing in public to Max Verstappen than Lewis Hamilton, for example. But but that's fine because as, as we've discussed on a previous um a flat chat podcast. There was a time sort of towards the end of his McLaren tenure where he just had completely fallen out of, of love with F1. As Mark says, that time away is, is good for anyone. He's, he's come back in. And I think actually it's, it's other people could, could learn from his, uh, attitude and obviously I'm biased because we want we want good headlines but there's some there's some sort of team bosses drivers that clearly you know after a a 40 degree uh, stint in the cockpit 5g passing out they don't want to talk to the media but others it is an opportunity to tell a story and to bend the narrative in in your favor and I I think again Andrea Andrea Stella is a great example of that he was renowned for not liking sort of fronting up to the media in his previous role but now he's he's flipped on a switch and that's because he uses it as an opportunity it's transactional he gets something out of it rather than just deciding that he loves speaking to us and our annoying questions to say a bit but he's good value isn't he he's he's great fun with what he says he knows what he's doing 
Um, and I, I actually found one of the bits, and this might be like going a bit too much into the subtext, but of what um, of Oleg also uh, spoke to Aston Martin team boss Mike Crack. And he says sort of, um, you know, his experience of working with older drivers, blah, 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 not thinking too much. And it does very much imply, and, and as we know, that it was all Lawrence Stroll that went and courted Alonso services. And maybe maybe Mike Crack would have gone for a younger driver based on what he'd seen in a DTM or at BMW. But that Alonso is absolutely the exception to the rule. Okay, the Aston has dropped off a little bit in recent races, and I think that's allowed... Um, some opportunity for some Alonso mistakes in in recent races. I don't think that's coming him. Like I don't think we're on the descent from the from the Alonso on the Alonso mountain by any means. But but sort of a couple of a couple of sort of uh, moments of dodgy car control or, or bad bad car placement aside, he he is incredible. His endurance. Um, a lot of people again again I can't remember if it's my mind playing tricks on me whether. But basically from where he was, how he ended. December with Alpine to turning up in Bahrain uh, at Abu Dhabi to then turning up in Bahrain for pre-season testing with Aston Martin. He looked like he basically dropped a, a waist size and whatever that he's, he's just so well conditioned. And even though um, it was before Drive to Survive, so didn't get the you know massive audience that they they did that uh, fly on the wall documentary, didn't they, with Alonso as he took on sports cars and Dakar and just seeing his sort of determination, his drive. Um, and also his absolute sort of lack of sentimentality, doesn't he? He's not, he's not, he, as, as Ted Rose says, he may one day make a great husband and dad, but certainly for the time being, he is, he is so laser focused. <laughs> but that's, that's really cool to see at times. And sorry, the last point is that, you know, selfishly, when I'm old and, you know, have grandparents, sit, uh, grandchildren sitting around the fire, I want to be able to look back on a career and say, I saw these people at the absolute peak of their powers. You know, I, I just missed out on Hamilton's winning streak or whatever. I, you know, I'm, I'm living through the Verstappen era, if you like, at the minute. But every now and again, you see a mega wheel-to-wheel battle and that's, that's Alonso at his peak. Okay, it's not 2005, 2006, 2007 anymore, but what a privilege to witness it at times. It was interesting that Mike Crack, he's a member of that select club of people it's it's quite a big club actually it's not difficult to get into who've worked with Jacques Villeneuve and not particularly enjoyed the experience so it was interesting that he if, if you read between the lines of what Mike Crack says uh, when, when uh, Fernando was kind of imposed on him so to speak he was thinking oh this isn't going to be great is it uh, uh, another another old driver who can't be bothered and is just going to be difficult to work with needlessly uh, and and actually it turned out it's been brilliant and and a revelation so he's perfectly happy i get the impression whenever i've spoken to him that actually what would have been really good for jacques would have been a break from formula one um so after williams went the way it did and then after BAR started to just go pear-shaped, which quite frankly was from, from the get-go, um, a break from Formula One would have been good. Um, he needed a break from his manager, Greg Pollock. Um, he needed a break from Formula One. I think he would have, again, like Fernando, he'd have had a bit of time to reflect on what was missing, what he'd lost, what had gone away. I mean, it's no, I think it's no accident that all these years later, Jacques is still driving anything that anyone will ever offer him to drive. He actually genuinely completely loves racing. He just loves getting behind the wheel of anything. And I think if he had his time over again, he'd be looking at how could he have sustained his Formula One career more um, more impressively because it did ultimately peter out in a very unsatisfactory way and he wasn't happy with how it ended. So again, the break... Um, a bit of a sabbatical doesn't do people any harm I think uh, everyone's decided they need a break from Craig Pollock haven't they Formula 1 itself you know, every time he comes back with some hey I've got an engine project hey I've got a team project it's like <laughs> go and stand over there until the oxygen runs out <laughs> yeah the thing is it's always so obviously just um, you know been a bit of a fag packet business plan you know pure F1 engines and then um uh, I'll come back with a, a team that commits itself to employing women, and you know he thinks that's going to be the USP that means he gets the deal uh, from the FIA. And uh, I mean, again, so you know, giving him the benefit. Uh, I mean, Craig, Craig misses Formula One. It's as simple as that. He misses it, and he's basically spent the last 
15 years trying to find a way back in and um, you know it's not gonna it's not gonna happen on the on the basis of the, the projects that he's trying to put together today like a moth to a flame well speaking of moths to a flame uh, around this time of year we like to do a tech analysis of the constructors championship winning car with Mercedes that was a very easy process because they used to put someone up to speak about it in detail often very honest um, Red Bull's a slightly closed door on that front uh, shall we say so we remain as moths to a flame hoping to speak to Adrian Newey or Pierre Vash one day it'll all come out in the Vash you might say um, but uh, so this <laughs> You can tell the writer strikes over, can't you? The really interesting thing about the RB19 is that it's just a good racing car. So um, a certain Matt Q this month has um, gone into the, the, the granular detail about how, while there's nothing spectacularly innovative about it, you know, there's a lot of excitement about what secrets it might have, but actually there isn't there isn't any great, secret to it it's just an all-around good racing car so regardless of what you know formula one's legion of self-appointed unqualified technical experts like to say on social media you know you have photographers scrambling whenever sergio perez crashes and his car has to be craned off so they can get uh, to see the holiest of holies the underfloor there's actually nothing there's nothing sort of there's no secret magic bullet it's a just a good holistic piece of design um as evinced by the car continuing to be quick after its little issue at singapore where uh the, the track uh, configuration didn't suit it and everyone thought that the new interpretation of the technical regulations was uh, had hobbled it um so an awful lot of conspiracy theorists had to wind their necks in after that didn't they matt it would almost be nice to be able to point to something as sort of sexy as a double diffuser or an abs uh, like a uh, 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 you know a uh, uh, basically a window in the regulations that was was a, a tiny bit ajar and Red Bull had prized open and exploited tremendously. But unfortunately, there's there's nothing like that. But as you say, Collins, it's an all-round car and that that is fundamentally the secret to success now. I think the previous generations with those fiddly barge bores and complex front wings, they sort of responded well to just basically crudely... And that's not to downplay any of the design work, but they just responded to having more downforce bolted on. More downforce equals more downforce in that era. But now everything has to work together. And that is why Red Bull's understand, uh, Red Bull are doing so well, because there's basically two elements to it. One is that they got their concept right from, from the get-go with the downwash side pods that everyone has converged around. You know, firstly, it was Aston Martin with their, their green Red Bull in, in Barcelona, but slowly everyone's ebbed towards that. Uh, Ferrari, have, you know, from Spain this year, they got rid of the bathtub side pods. Mercedes have gone away from the zero pod. So now everyone is running some evolution of the downwash, down ramp side pod. Uh, apart from Haas, but we're recording this just as we fly out to Austin and that VF23 will then have that same concept in Austin. So everyone's gone down the Optimum solution. And although everyone's at pains to say it's not all about the side pod, that is just... Uh, is, is that is just a good snapshot of that ground effect car architecture that everyone's going. And because Red Bull have got their first, they've had more time to refine that concept. Obviously, we saw their struggles with, with Re- Renault and whatever. They have been like the aero team, if you like, as opposed to the engine team. That is their bread and butter. They've been able to refine that concept. So I think, you know, you can go on about many things, uh, but the two the two outstanding areas are, are ride control, which makes sense in a ground effect era, and also tallies with the Singapore drop-off that they had to raise the car uh, to get over the curbs in, in Singapore, and, and that massively unsettled them because it put the car that has an incredibly wide operating window, just put it a bit amiss. But I think the most interesting thing, if you could boil the RB19 down into it, like into one like snapshot of its brilliance it's it's the rear wing or the drs effect that everyone picked up on from straight away how quick it was in drs and again you're looking for that that game-changing pioneering uh design trick by which all then it will either then be outlawed or all future cars will be designed with it well it wasn't really that it was just because the car holistically works so well and this it's sort of aged a little bit with Perez losing all confidence, but because the car was designed so well, 
drivers could stick it in, put it on the throttle, and they're really happy with how it responded with the aero coming from the floor and the rear treatment of the car. That meant they could back off the wings. And so that meant either low drag, some massive straight line efficiency, or a huge rear wing with a massive main plane, low drag beam wing, and then you open the you open the cat flap, as it were, and then suddenly you're you're you've you've cut out a massive hole and again you're just sailing by in a straight line. So it's those and because everyone else was so far behind Red Bull and their understanding, it took until Spa of this year for McLaren to do something similar. And rather than Horner going, we'll go to the lawyers, they've been a bit of tracing paper, the Red Bull designers were going, what on earth took you guys so long? It's been there, the FI have checked it, it's legal, you're the best minds in the business, why is it taking you the better part of 18 months? And that's where we're at. So to, to throw forward, I think you have to hope that McLaren's massive games or, or Mercedes being reserved, since they've understood they have to completely reset and go down a different path and therefore them you know, being quite reserved with how they've upgraded the W14, you have to hope both those will pay dividends because that and alongside the ATR sort of kneecapping Red Bull got for breaching the cost cap, you have to hope that they've got giant steps to make over the off season so they can they can catch up with Red Bull who will be quite content with incremental gains. It reminded me of the fact that at the Melbourne Grand Prix earlier this year, uh, a friend of mine, Red Bull, invited me into the garage to have a look around the car and all the bodywork was off, the, the guys were working on it. And I haven't seen a naked uh, current car for, for a couple of years. And the last one was, was Lewis's at uh, Lewis Hamilton's at Singapore a couple of years ago. But the thing which just blew me away was the integration, the way everything is wrapped and packaged. And I mean, it almost looks organic. It looks, you know, it has, it's, it, it, it's actually hard to believe that, uh, a, a, multi, a multiplicity of engineers have integrated such a coherent solution, which it just all works. You know, every system does the job that it's designed to do. It, you know, one system integrates and complements the other system. It's just incredible to see. And actually, it, you know, I'm not an engineer, but I I used to slightly struggle, you know, over a three or four year period to see how much technology had evolved over a three or four year period. I now look at anything from sort of pre-2020, 2018. It's agricultural compared to what we've got now. I mean, the complexity has moved on to an entirely new level. And as for when I now see you know, any of the, the cars that I worked with back in my Jordan days or, e- or even at the beginning of the Red Bull journey when they, when they acquired the team from, from Jaguar. I mean, it's, you know, it's like looking at something from the 18th century. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So the integration is everything. And, of course, this, this really appeals to Adrian because he's an innovator um, and he loves leading a team of people to be curious about how they innovate. Um, but when you listen to him, I mean, he recently did the, the official F1 podcast with uh, with Tom Clarkson, and I found that really interesting to listen to because he you know, he talked for an hour about what it makes him tick and, you know, sort of philosophy around car design. And you get this real sense that he just sees it as, as a trajectory towards perfection. You know, he just – he's looking at – he's looking in the round. He looks at it, you know, so where can we go to? And – he knows full well that the big innovation, you know, the big massive leap that, that perhaps used to be possible when regulations were slightly less controlling, those days, they haven't gone, but they're much more difficult to find. So it's much more about incremental innovation, it's marginal gains, all those things. And then periodically you get the big step. Well, what he's managed to do and what the team has done with these latest Red Bulls is to, as exactly to Matt's point, set out with a concept, get the get a fundamental concept that's going to work and then evolve that to a point where Max, and, you know, beginning of the podcast, we were talking about Max. Max is, you know, incredible season and Red Bull's incredible season with that car. It's, it's, everything has come together in exactly the right way. And that is why they're so damned hard to beat because everyone else needs to be achieving near perfection in order to take the fight to them. And the, the, the you know, goodness only knows with the year that they've had and the fact that 
for some time. They already knew they had both championships tied up. They've been able to focus on 2024. And, I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of the box um, next February. Always interests me, um, on, on my rare visits to the grid, which will cause a wry smile to erupt on the uh, lips of, of Matt Q there. I do occasionally, I'm persuaded to go to the grid, but just not to hang around with the group of um, idiotic journalists who only go to try and get into the background of the Martin Brundle grid walk. You see Adrian Newey wandering around with his notebook and looking at other cars and taking notes. And very often you'll see you know, some TV cameraman or whatever will try and sneak up behind him and and point their camera over his shoulder to try and get at uh, a, a, a snapshot of what he's drawing or writing in his notebook. So I think at Silverstone last year, I sort of watched this happen. And he's, he's very good at dealing with these people. He doesn't smack them in the face or anything. He just sort of pretends they're not there and they go away and leave him alone. So I, I sidled up, after, up to him afterwards and said, um, are you ever tempted to sort of, you know, draw a little obscene scrawl or something or like a bit of graffiti or something in your notebook and stand there until someone points a camera over your shoulder. And he, he sort of giggled a bit and went, yes. <laughs> and I said, you should next time. He probably hasn't. Disappointing. So the, the one disappointing thing about the greatest engineer of his generation. But wouldn't that be a great image on FOM TV if there is some sort of um, hideously obscene picture in Adrian Newey's notebook. Maybe I'm just being childish. Well, I was to say quickly, phallic sketches aside, Codders, which is uh, where we go to all too often when we're, when we're chatting. But um, it's, when, when he is with his clipboard on the grid, it's every car that he's interested in. It's not as if it's just a preserve of the Ferrari and Mercedes as the cho- closest challenger. You often see him sort of staring at the Williams or the Haas or the Alpha, just taking it all in because I, I, I really believe, and I don't think that's just a show for cameras. I really believe he thinks you know, it's worthwhile to learn learn from everyone and, and cherry pick a few things or even, as he said on uh, as uh, uh, on the F1 podcast, either to cherry pick things or to, to eliminate them because in the era of cost cap and, and spending restrictions and uh, wind tunnel restrictions, basically to, to not throw resource, uh, resources investigating a concept that he doesn't believe will work so um it, and it's and it's also just it's that palette cleanser isn't it you see everyone plugged in with their laptops reams and reams of data and there he is with a ballpoint pen and a, and a pvc clipboard it's brilliant it is interesting that the the back of the grid can be as as useful as the front because he can look at a car that's been say underperforming and perhaps look at features of it and think well actually yeah maybe that's why it's not working or I, I can see what they've done wrong why can't they uh, so it's probably just a little validation of how useful his team is to him as, as in his role as sort of the, the the master string puller it's it's all about um, management when you have a team that big and you have to integrate the car isn't it I would always like to know or like a penny for the other designers thoughts when he's wondering at that stage are they hoping he won't like basically be chuckling to himself at a scene or are they thinking oh Adrian News here I might just top and tail my CV in case a position comes available at, at Red Bull or, or, or get a crafty picture so they can go to the team boss next time and say look Adrian Newey's um, looking looking at my car <laughs> I think with Adrian, you know, look going up and down the grid, looking at the teams that aren't performing as well as those that are, it, it, you you can really gain a sense. He wants to know the overall trajectory that people are following, you know, uh, because he may see a concept that is not currently working, but he might be still interested in that concept. He can see what they're trying to do, you know, what are they? What are they trying? You know, there's an idea there may may not be working particularly well and i think the other thing is that these days formula one is is so competitive you know when you look at when you look at the battle behind red bull this year that we've had you know we've had aston martin we've had ferrari we've had mercedes we've you know mclaren um adrian will be just curious you know what where, what are they up to what what are the what are their concepts what direction what is their direction of travel in terms of car development and 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 obviously then he can sit down with his folks and say uh right so it's really interesting to see what McLaren are doing, uh, or it's uh, can't really quite understand why Mercedes have gone that way because that's probably not going to work. So it gives it gives them really good intel, um, and and I, I love I, I back to your point, Matt. I love the 
I suppose, really the humanity of it. You know, the fact that in this digital age, you know, you have a person in the shape of Adrian with his clipboard, you know, going around, you know, jotting things down and, and, and making a note. It, it, it humanizes a sport that has become so dehumanized by the technology and the AI and the software and all of that. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a creative process and creativity needs people. We, we are coming up to the end of our allocated slot. Mark, you need to be uh, disappearing out the door with your pre-packed suitcase that will no doubt, you, yeah. you'll have you'll have learned from that video on the internet about how to pack a suitcase. I, I, I did, case, I, to Salt Lake, I followed it religiously this morning <coughs> and it's currently sitting in the hallway waiting for me to finish this podcast. Will you be watching the Book of Mormon on your way to Salt Lake City? <laughs> oh, I've, I've been to see the show. And I mean, once you've been to see the... The show, the West End show, is just astonishingly hilarious. Uh, yeah, my wife took me for my birthday a few years, in before times, pre-pandemic, before um, theatres got a little bit, um, <clears throat> the dust the, the, the dust on the seats got even more dusty. But anyhow, thank you for your contributions. Apologies to our listener for the slightly shorter than usual podcast, but we've got to go, pull the slotters down, and uh, Mark's got to get on a plane. Matt Q, where are you, what is your suitcase packing status? Uh, pants washed, not packed. Uh, uh, so that's that's this afternoon's activity. And then uh, I'm sorry that this birthday won't be your with your wife going to a West End musical. But listeners, we are hoping to take Collis to go and see The Killers, which is about 20 years too modern for him. But I'm sure we can. Uh, I'm sure we can get him to dabble with a bit of popular music. Where are you seeing The Killers then? Part of the Austin Entertainment Package. I think Friday oh, night is The Killers, and then Saturday night is The Queen and Adam Lambert. But because of the blasted sprint race format i don't think we'll be uh, we'll be clocking or punching out by then we might turn up just as brian may is doing the guitar solo from brighton rock which is usually people's cue to go to the bar it has to be said but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyhow i look forward to seeing the killers hopefully brandon flowers might won't drop any um, diplomatic errors, we will be able to address that great philosophical question for our times. Are we human? Are we human? Or are we dancer? Uh, Or instead of wasting your time with that nonsense, you can go to gpracing.com and take out a subscription to our fantastic magazine, seymour.co.uk, or our distributors uh, tap in your postcode into their uh, wonderful stockist finder. You'll be able to find out which shop's local to you stock GP racing. Thanks to my guest, thanks to our long-suffering producer, Martin Lee, who now has the task, uh, the, the sturdy task of assembling this into something listenable. And we'll be back, hopefully from our travels, hopefully not with tinnitus from the killers, uh, in another month. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.